while I invite the rest of you, please, to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 35. Luke 18, 35. We are drawing closer and closer to Jerusalem. Well, not in this room, but in the text. We're getting closer. And uh, we're about to come to that uh, great triumphal entry event as Jesus uh, moves into the city. Uh, I will give you a little bit of foreshadowing and tell you that we're going to hold that in abeyance until Palm Sunday. But uh, we will get there. But uh, this morning, Luke tells us that Jesus is still on the way. And he's moving in that direction. And as we read the text this morning, uh, we are introduced to two more people who experience an encounter with Jesus that is life-changing. In chapter 18, verse 35, and moving uh, through into chapter 19, uh, Luke writes, as Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd go by, he began to inquire what this was. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and one uh, was unable to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for Jesus was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today... Salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that 
which was lost. So we have two stories in this passage. We have the story of a blind man who receives his sight. And we have the story of a rich man who is powerfully transformed. We're going to come back uh, to look at that in, in comparison with another rich man we just studied. Because Luke uh, tells these two stories on the way to Jerusalem quite close together. Uh, the one young ruler who was very rich and went away sorrowful. And this chief tax collector who was very rich and yet experienced a marvelous transformation by the grace of God. You know, when we think of the word salvation, because of our tradition, uh, we have a tendency to uh, think of salvation in terms of going to heaven. In fact, many times when we ask the question, are you saved? What we really mean is, are you going to heaven when you die? Uh, that's kind of how we've been uh, taught to think. Uh, that's the history of evangelicalism in many uh, senses, or at least evangelism, is that uh, the, the whole point is to get saved so you can avoid hell and go to heaven. And uh, I don't mean to minimize the significance of that in any way. Uh, missing hell is a very, very important uh, thing. And being able to go to heaven is also uh, a very, very important option. But the biblical meaning of salvation is so much broader than simply avoiding hell and going to heaven. In fact, uh, if you get down into the root word of salvation or, or the Greek word sozo or to save, um, it it means in its essence to heal or to restore or to bring back to wholeness. And what God wants to do for us in salvation is not merely change our destiny, but He wants to change our person. He wants to do a work in our hearts that transforms us in such a way that we begin to recover what sin has eroded. Not only our own sin, but the sin of generations, the, the plight of the human race. We have been affected at levels uh, we talked about uh, last week. The heart of man being desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Uh, we have such a depth of sinfulness uh, that has permeated our being so thoroughly that the Scripture says we don't even think rightly anymore. Um, the, the Bible teaches us that God thinks in a way wholly other than, than we do. Uh, he has a completely different uh, world view. He has a completely different way of interpreting life. Um, he looks at things unlike anything we can imagine. Uh, we measure things uh, with, uh, you know, um, criteria and yardsticks and instruments uh, that God doesn't even use. And so we have been affected by sin in so many different ways. 
And salvation really means to heal us, to restore us to wholeness in the entire person so that there's a transformation of our lives that brings us back to God's original intent. Jesus came to reverse the total effect of sin through His atonement. And that includes for us, um, thank you, that includes for us not only the spirit, but the soul, the mind, the will, and the emotions, and the body. Those of you that have been listening to me for a while, you probably know where I'm going, but it bears repeating so that it kind of gets locked into our minds. Uh, salvation occurs in three time frames. There is an instantaneous aspect to salvation. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us we come dead in trespasses and sins. Our human spirit has the light gone out. It's turned off. It's there, but it's not working. And it's not connected to God. And it's just simply um, unresponsive to Him. And when we are born again, it literally means that God brings our spirit to life. It is an instantaneous uh, process that happens in the moment. That God rebirths us with a living spirit. And He does so by once again... Uh, coming into our lives by His Holy Spirit and taking up residence and bringing us to life in Jesus Christ. This is made possible because He forgives our sin. He cleanses this temple. Uh, the, the body, the temple is a metaphor for the body. And, and the body needs to be cleansed just like the temple did. And once it is cleansed by the powerful and effective blood of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is able to, again, bring the Shekinah presence of God back into our lives and take up residence, and we're born again. And in that moment, we come alive unto God through Jesus Christ. But that's only the beginning. That's just the starting point. Once we have the new birth and the Holy Spirit resident in our lives, we have the opportunity now to begin to grow in Christ. We have the opportunity uh, to allow the Holy Spirit, who now lives within us, to move into all of the arenas of our lives. He is able to change our will, to empower it to make right choices. The Scripture speaks of the bondage of sin that really is referring to the bondage of the human will. We are lost in sin, and we are predisposed to make bad choices. But the Holy Spirit is enable, uh, enables us, through the freedom of the will, to begin to make right choices, and He empowers us to do that. It also means that 
he begins to uh, heal our emotions. Uh, we are far more influenced by how we feel than we realize. Many people live by their emotions. Um, you know, they, they're just guided by their feelings. Uh, they're unstable. Uh, they're weak-willed. Uh, they're unpredictable. Well, they're predictable in the fact that they're unpredictable. Uh, you can just never count on what they're going to do next. Uh, and they're kind of d- driven by whatever feeling is happening at the moment. And God wants to take over our emotions in the sense that He uh, begins to bring healing there so that they feel properly. It's not that we're supposed to be unfeeling people. It's just that our emotions are to serve us, not control us. And He wants to renew uh, and, and heal those damaged emotions and restore uh, to health and to wholeness right kinds of responses. And in the process of doing that, He addresses our minds and He wants to uh, transform the way we think. The Scripture says, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We need to have our minds renewed. And the mind is renewed as we encounter God in His words. one of the reasons why I want us to read the New Testament as a congregation. Because as we encounter God in His Word, and He begins to speak true truth to us, it begins to get into our consciousness, into our thought processes, and and we begin to think after Him the way He thinks. So that our mind is changed. This is a process. This process of the the salvation of the, the human personality, the soul, the mind, the will, and emotions, takes Frankly, a lifetime. Uh, You accelerate it by cooperating with the Holy Spirit and you retard it by resisting Him. But as a believer, you have the capacity to grow in Jesus Christ and become changed into His likeness day by day so that you look and behave more like Him as time goes along. And then finally, at the very uh, end of the process, there is the resurrection of the body and the restoration of an immortal, uh, raised physical body that will uh, dwell with Him eternally in His presence so that salvation has been completed. The moment of new birth, the process of sanctification, the resurrection of the body, the restoration of the whole person. This is what God is after. He wants to recover what was lost in Adam, in the, in the rebellion, in the fall. He wants to restore us and, and, and to redeem us fully in every dimension. So many Christians, so many Christians, just simply make that uh, genuine decision to follow Christ and, and because of either lack of teaching or, or no discipleship or no follow-through, they never grow beyond that stage. They remain spiritual babies. They're infants. They're still governed by a a mind that is off track and and a will that uh, is captivated by the emotions and 
and they just continue to live lives that are defeated. And God has much more for us. And so when we think of salvation in terms of heaven, friends, heaven is the byproduct. It's the natural consequence of the destiny of a life changed by God. Where else could you go when you've been so thoroughly transformed but to be in the presence of the living God? Heaven is not the objective. It's the reward because of the objective, the transformation, the the whole uh, changing of our lives to begin to look and reflect Jesus Christ. Of course we have eternal life in His presence. Of course we have the glories of heaven to anticipate. But that's not the, the focus, in a sense. The focus is, as Paul writes to the Philippians, that I may know Him. I want to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus. And so, with that in mind, we have two stories here. One of a man who needs physical healing, which is a foretaste of the ultimate healing in resurrection. And the other who really needs transformation. His soul is out of whack, and he needs to be fixed. And so, Luke tells us the story of these two individuals. First of all, we meet Bartimaeus. Jesus is on uh, the Jericho Road. This, by the way, is uh, t- takes me back every time I come to this passage. It's one of the first sermons I preached. Uh, I was uh, 17 years old, and uh, I was invited uh, to preach, and, and I loved this passage. It makes for great drama. For a 17-year-old to preach. (laughs) And it's pretty straightforward. I've learned an awful lot since then, but there's still some excitement going on here. Uh, And you you probably caught that as I was reading through it. Because, uh, you know, here's this guy who uh, is blind, uh, hasn't seen, uh, you know... Every day of his life, he probably has been wondering, what would it be like to have my sight? And he hears this commotion coming down the road, and uh, he starts to make inquiry. You know, what's going on? And they say, uh, Jesus is coming. You know, he's passing this way. And Bartimaeus has heard about Jesus, and he's heard about the miracles. And he has experienced, uh, you know, all the stories, but he has not experienced Jesus. And he is not going to be left out. This is his grand moment. And he begins to, you know, cry out. I don't think this guy was passively, you know, kind of raising his hand, waiting to be recognized. You know, there's no classroom uh, decorum going on here. This guy is uh, crying out for Jesus to stop and recognize him. And have mercy on him. Son of David, have mercy on me. And uh, now they're embarrassed. They wish they hadn't told this guy. You know, what's going on? It's like he's, he's, he's messing this whole thing up. Uh, shh, stop that. You're making a scene. 
Oh, that's exactly what I want to do is make a scene. He begins to cry all the louder. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He won't shut up. And so Jesus stops. And Jesus asks a very simple but a very perceptive question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, friends, I suggest to you this morning that there is a world of wisdom and penetration and analysis in that question. The blind man's problem was fairly obvious. Sometimes ours get, our problems get lost in the shuffle or uh, confused. And we need to think about this question. What do I need Jesus to do? How can I put it in a way that it is clearly stated to the point and that I will know when he does it? Sometimes we pray prayers that are so nebulous and so wandering and so open-ended that we wouldn't know the answer if we fell over it. We never know whether God has heard us or not. Because we couch it in so many uh, what-ifs and possibilities and, and generalities. Um, if, you, if you pray a prayer, Lord, bless my life. Okay, how? What does that look like? What do you want Him to do for you? What way do you need to be blessed? What is your request? That's what Jesus, He wants to get to the heart of this issue. He wants this man, Jesus is not blind, the man is blind, but Jesus can see. And He knows He's blind. And he probably knows what he wants. But he wants the guy to articulate what he wants. He wants him to say it out loud. I want my sight. And he's looking at Jesus and he says, I think with confidence, I want my sight. I want to see. And Jesus says, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, he regained his sight. Specific request, specific answer, instant responsiveness to glorifying God. Friends, there's so many lessons here about prayer. I, I almost wish I could just stop and, and, and make the whole sermon on prayer. But there's so many lessons here. Because when you ask God for specific things and you get specific answers, the automatic response of the heart is to rejoice and give glory to God and to begin to celebrate Him. It draws you closer to Him. It fortifies your faith. It, it, it builds you up and, and gives you greater confidence for greater things. Uh, there's nothing more exciting than talking to your Heavenly Father 
about specific issues and seeing God answer in those specific ways. And you know what? Don't, don't worry about if you ask the wrong thing. I'm not suggesting that every time you, you articulate what you want, that you're going to get it. What I'm suggesting to you is that if you can articulate it and name it, if it's not right for you, God will work you through it. He will walk you through it. He will help you uh, refine that until uh, your heart and His heart are coming together. Sometimes we ask for wrong things, you know. Uh, children ask for a lot of things they don't need. And some would just downright be detrimental. But at least the conversation has started. And you typically don't have to wonder what it is a child wants. They make that abundantly clear. Just witness the scene in the aisle of the supermarket anytime you go. And you see a mom with a young kid. Oh boy, it can be a mess. They know what they want. And so... Jesus is responding to a specific request with a specific answer, and the result is praising and glorifying God. Now, we're in the Christian Missionary Alliance, and we do believe that God gives us a little foretaste of resurrection in healing here in the present time. We, we do not make the claim that every single person that gets sick gets 100% healed. But we do believe that God invites us to come to Him and ask Him for healing in the here and now and look to Him as Jehovah, our doctor. And so I want to ask you a question because this is a very important distinction. Uh, on the uh, licensing and ordaining committee, we ask every single candidate... To explain the answer to this question. What is the difference between divine healing and faith healing? And I want to ask that question of you as you look at the passage. Because Jesus says to him, receive your sight, your faith has made you well. And I want to ask you the question, what healed this man? Jesus or his faith. And all we have to do is just back up a little bit and analyze the sentence Jesus says, receive your sight. Who healed him? Jesus healed him. Why did he heal him? Because he had the faith to ask. And I want to make that very plain because sometimes it, it may seem like I, I'm just making a picky point, but it's a very important point. Jesus is the healer. You do not stay sick or get well on the basis of your faith. If you have enough faith, you can kind of uh, move the cosmic energy to accomplish the goal. You know, you can somehow persuade God that you're worthy of a response. Uh, as you muster faith, uh, people's lives have been destroyed by being accused of not having sufficient faith when they didn't get the answer they wanted. 
And, and some have even uh, made tragic mistakes because of that. Uh, friends, faith is not what heals us. Jesus is who heals us. He is the healer. It is always His domain. It is always His privilege. It is always His power. We look to Him. Now, you don't have because you don't ask. And if you never bother to ask, your lack of faith may leave you in a condition you don't like. But if you are willing to come to Jesus and to to fix your hope in Him, He will deal with you as the great physician. And in one way or another, He will meet you. And if He does not remove your illness, He will do other things for you that will, in effect, bring healing to your life. Jesus doesn't leave you in the soup. He will meet you at your point of need in some way that will bring a measure of restoration. And He is faithful to do that. And so we need to be very clear that when we pray for healing... We are looking to Jesus Christ. We are not putting our stock in faith as some sort of mechanical, um, you know, uh, a word of power that is going to move the, as I said, the cosmic energy. There's a lot of people that teach that and nothing could be further from the truth. The second story we have here is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a, a, a curious little guy. Um, he's a little guy. He, he's short of stature. I don't know how tall, but, but he was... He, in, a, in a time and a culture when men were not very tall to begin with, not like today, I think somebody 6'4 in the first century would have really stood out. Um, you know, uh, probably the average height of a guy then was 5, 10, or 11. Uh, Zacchaeus was little, uh, even among his peers, and uh, he couldn't see over the crowd. Uh, but he heard Jesus was coming, and he too had heard about Jesus, and he was curious. And so he climbs up in this tree, and uh, he wants to get a glimpse of uh, Jesus. He wants to see him. I don't know what drove his curiosity uh, to, to make that initial step. But there was something that drew him to Jesus. And then his world changed. Because the procession is coming down the road. And all of a sudden Jesus stops. And looks up the tree right at him. And says something that just startled Zacchaeus. Come down. I'm going to your house. I'm going to be your guest. Whoa! Nothing could have surprised this guy more. I'm sure it elated Matthew. But tax gatherers were not popular people. And the chief tax collector was the least popular of all. He was most despised by uh, all the people. Not just because he was a tax gatherer, but because they considered them to be traitors among their own people. The Romans picked uh, people within their own nationality in the various regions of the empire to collect taxes from their own people. 
and they were considered uh, by every uh, subculture in the in the empire to be traitors. And they were allowed to make their living off of their tax taxing. And uh, many times uh, you could not argue with them. They had the enforcement of Roman law. Uh, they would assess you in ways that were not fair. Uh, they would steal from you. They would pad their pockets. It was a great way to get rich. And so um, this guy has made his living and then some by being the chief tax gatherer. You, you can imagine he won that position by being very good at it. And now Jesus wants to go to his house. And some of the other Gospels give us a little more insight into this, but as Jesus is having a conversation with him, something happens to Zacchaeus. A transformation of his heart occurs. He's one moment talking to Jesus out of curiosity and, and interest, and the next moment he sees him as Lord and Master, and himself as a sinner in need of salvation in need of grace. He wants to know this man. And he realizes that the price is going to be to turn from his greed and his wickedness. And all of a sudden, out of a heart that is hungry for Christ, he says, half of everything I have, I will give to the poor. Right to the heart of Jesus' message. And anyone that I have defrauded, I will pay back four times. I will make it up to them. I don't want anything that isn't mine. I want to get right today. You see how quickly his life was changed? How suddenly he was transformed. Friends, the moment of salvation is a transforming moment. We come an old, dead, broken person. We leave restored, full of life. And changed from within. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. There has been a change of heart. A transformation of the life. How many people have testified that the moment they received Jesus Christ, life suddenly Changed things that they thought were right and they argued for now hold no significance. They suddenly see clearly what is right and wrong. Uh, their their morality is all of a sudden transformed. Uh, they have a clear perspective of righteousness. And this man Zacchaeus, uh, as he makes this commitment. 
Uh, Jesus says today salvation has come to this house, for he too is the son of Abraham. He is not referring to his Jewish heritage here. He is referring to the fact that Abraham is the father of those who believe by faith. We are children of Abraham who believe by faith. We are grafted into his family tree. This man, too, has become a man of faith. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Look at the contrast between the rich ruler and this tax gatherer. The rich ruler, all these things I have kept from my youth up. There is no question in my mind that this wealthy ruler that we studied previously had tried to keep all the commandments, that he had gone to synagogue, that he had been faithful in all of the details of Judaism, despite the fact that he was a greedy person who only wanted to accumulate wealth. He had an outward show of engaged religion. And this guy, would never have been welcomed in synagogue, was an outcast from his people, had probably long ago given up on any uh, semblance of, of keeping the law, uh, had without uh, embarrassment pursued the gain of wealth, the least likely. And yet, in his encounter with Jesus Christ, he is instantly transformed Because he has a hungry heart and Jesus has met him and before his eyes he has seen the greater prize. And suddenly his money means nothing and Jesus means everything. What a dramatic difference. They were both rich. They were both greedy. They had both lived for money. But the one, the aristocratic ruler, could not give it up. And the other, in a moment, turned from it to follow Jesus Christ. I want to point out one thing that these two people had in common, and I want to encourage us with this in closing. Bartimaeus could not be shut up could not be shut up. He wasn't about to stop yelling until Jesus paid attention. Zacchaeus did not let the crowds deter him. He found a way to get up a tree so that he could get a bird's eye view of Jesus. They would not be deterred. They would not be put off. They would not be dissuaded. They could not be held back. The Scripture says, And you will seek me, and you will find me, when you search for me with all your heart. I want to encourage you this morning. If you are hungry for God, He will be found of you. If there is in your heart a determination to know Him, to come to Him, to experience Him. He will not ignore you. 
He will not turn you down. He will stop. He will focus His attention on you. He will stop beneath your tree and beckon you down and go home and have fellowship with you. He will respond to the hungry heart that will not be put off. And you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. Are you hungry for the Lord this morning? Are you thirsting after Him? Do you want Him more than anything in the world? Fellow believer, has your life slipped into mediocrity? You're not living the abundant life and you need to get back on the path. You can't climb back on on your own. You just need to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. I need you to come get me. But I'm willing. And I won't shut up until you come. Maybe you're here this morning without Him. But your heart is saying, Oh, I want that. That's what I want. I want to know Him. He will reward you. He's not going to leave you alone. He will reward you. With His presence, He will come to you. It's His promise. He will be found by you. And He won't turn you away. Father, I pray this morning in the name of Jesus Christ that You would move upon us, that You would stir our hearts, that that we would become specific and articulate in our request of You, that we would ask You what we want and explain what we need in no uncertain terms. And in our hunger for You, that we will not be discouraged, but we will cry out until we have Your attention. It's not that You're slow about it, but sometimes we have to cry for a while till we get all the distracting things out of our own lives. Give us a hunger this morning and a thirst that will not be satisfied until we have Your full attention. And we are home in your presence. Move upon us and accomplish your purposes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.